Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000. They're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100, uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy, and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511, Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Batman. The Prisoner's Dilemma. Tit for tat. And Donald Trump. My name is Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm sitting in. Honored to be with you. Is Donald Trump a thin-skinned idiot? Now, some prefacing comments. Let us not watch for entertainment. Let us not listen to be afraid. We listen and communicate to help build understanding. And in seeking understanding, is Donald J. Trump, the current occupant of the White House in the United States of America, a thin-skinned idiot? Or is that a simplistic understanding, a lazy critique that didn't help Charlie Chaplin topple Hitler or keep Ronald Reagan or Dan Quayle or George W. Bush from serving two terms? What do we need to make sure we understand when watching Donald Trump's contrasting statements regarding Michael Cohen, who implicated Trump, and Paul Manafort, who was convicted but who has not implicated the current president. It is somewhat simple and also pretty useful to understand. Batman, The Dark Knight, the best comic book movie? Might be, 
The Joker has managed to force Gotham authorities to load two ferries, one with citizens, the other with criminals. While in the water, we see the Joker has rigged each ferry with explosives and given detonators to each boat. The detonators, we are told, are linked to the other boat's explosive. Each boat has until midnight to detonate the other ship's ordnance, or both ferries will be destroyed. Each ferry has to make a choice, kill or be killed, confess or stay silent. And the clock is ticking. This was a popularized version of The Prisoner's Dilemma, the most famous exercise in game theory economics and behavioral studies. Two members of a criminal gang are arrested and imprisoned. Each is in solitary confinement, can't communicate with the other. Prosecutors lack sufficient evidence to convict the pair on the principal charge, but have enough evidence to convict both on a lesser charge. So the prosecutors offer each a bargain. Each prisoner can either betray the other by testifying that the other committed the crime, or they can cooperate with the other by remaining silent. If both of them betray the other, each serves two years in prison. If A betrays B, but B remains silent, A will be set free and B will serve three years in prison. If A and B both remain silent, both of them will only serve one year in prison on the lesser charge. It is implied the prisoners will have no opportunity to reward or punish their partner. Each fairy has to make a choice, kill or be killed, confess or stay silent, and the clock is ticking. An extended iterated version of the game also exists. You play the same game, but now they continuously have the opportunity to penalize the other for the previous game. The number of times the game will be played is known to the players. Sometimes it isn't. And you can continue to play the game. Tit for tat. It is an English saying meaning equivalent retaliation. Also, by the way, a highly effective strategy in game theory for the iterated prisoner's dilemma. The phrase originally came from another phrase, tip for tap, first used in apparently, according to Wikipedia, 1558. An agent using this strategy will first cooperate, then subsequently replicate an opponent's, an opponent's excuse me, previous action. If the opponent previously was cooperative, the agent is cooperative. If not, the agent is not. It's connected to super rationality, it's connected to reciprocal altruism in biology. The strategy first introduced by Anatole Rappaport in game theory tournaments around 1980, the year Ronald Reagan was elected. You may have heard of The Prisoner Dilemma. You might have seen the Batman film. You have probably heard the phrase tit for tat. In today's news, and we will be discussing that and other things today on the Tom Hartman program, and I am Jefferson Smith sitting in. Donald Trump said nice things about Paul Manafort. He said not as nice things about Michael Cohen. There is a consistent narrative about Donald Trump that I believe to be a simplistic one that blinds us. In the same way, I believe the narrative that focuses too much on Donald Trump is simplistic and blinds us. I also even think the narrative about Donald Trump is simplistic and blinds us. Is he an idiot? Is that the primary question that needs to be evaluated? Did that help Charlie Chaplin topple Adolf Hitler? Was Ronald Reagan denied a second term because of the critiques of his intelligence? Did Dan Quayle, as vice president, fail to serve a second term or harm the reelection chances of George Bush the elder because he misspelled potato? Was George W. Bush's challenges with the English language a deterrent for voters to reelect him to a second term? When we see Donald Trump attack someone who's attacked him or praise someone who has praised him, it is, because, is it because he is thin-skinned? Is it because he lacks discipline? Does it matter if I know the answer to those questions? Might there also be something else going on? The tit-for-tat strategy, in game-theoretic terms, 
played over and over and over again ended up being usually the most successful strategy for the iterated game. If you could set emotions aside, or if you could have your emotions calibrated to a tit-for-tat strategy. If you weren't concerned about long-term relationships, except for to the degree that someone continued to do what you wanted. If you weren't concerned with principle or morality or values, except to the degree that it corresponded with your ability to either tit or tip or tat or tap, you could be a very successful game-theoretic player. Rosie O'Donnell didn't cooperate. Terrace with China, tit for tat. Paul Manafort cooperated. Donald Trump says nice things, considers pardon. In conversation with Fox News, which is Donald Trump's choice to communicate with the nation rather than doing, as a listener pointed out yesterday, And by the way, the call-in number here is 202-808-9925. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Jefferson Smith sitting in. 202-808-9925. As a listener pointed out, Donald Trump not only is engaged in tit-for-tat, but Donald Trump also recognizes that he wants to reward his friends, and punish his enemies, a strategy as old as time. We are blinded if we don't understand that it is simple as that. He says, oh, I might pardon, instead of, as our listener also pointed out, going before a full one on the press, press conference, as all presidents in the modern era have done before. Instead, I will just talk to state-run media. I will talk to Republican-run Fox News, and that is who I will tell my story because they won't challenge my story. And I will praise Paul Manafort. I will float the idea of a pardon. But Michael Cohen, who implicates me, I will not. I want to say something. I'm going to be saying it again. One of the things that appalls me, it appalls me, and I have to breathe scan the room and understand what is going on so that I can act beyond merely being appalled so that my emotion and I hope our collective emotion can focus our activity, can make us stronger and smarter rather than blinding us, rather than clouding our vision or muddling our judgment. I am appalled that after 1,400 people were determined by this administration, but not yet identified. We don't have pictures of them. They don't have names. They're just in a number. They're just in a study. They're just in an analysis. Are sentenced to an early death. And what I just said is not an exaggeration. By this administration and the stroke of several pens and the types on several keyboards to eliminate the clean power rules, that somehow that was viewed as not merely a less important story than the onward going on saga of the depth of corruption and conspiracy within the White House, but also less important than an individual tragedy that is a tragedy and a manifestation of evil, but that what Fox News understood is that if they could focus the attention on telegenic pictures of a fallen person, and then focus the attention at an immigrant who has been claimed not to, supposed to be in this country, and they could try to change the subject away from the killing of many Americans, the death of many Americans based on policy choices, not stuff that just happens, but stuff that got done. And they could focus the attention instead on crime on illegal immigration. And I am appalled not only by the actions of the administration and not only by a particular killer, not only by the killings that happen every single day in this country, but also by people who ought to know better and who do know better, but go the other way, who try to cloud our judgment, who try to misprioritize what is actually going on, and who try to get us not to focus on the most important things that are happening in this country by distracting us with panem et circenses, bread and circuses, tax cuts for the wealthy, pretending that is bread and Donald Trump and Fox News headlines offering the circus and Rome fell 
And if we don't want to fall, if we want the American small-D Democratic, you can call it Republican if you choose, experiment to succeed, if we want it not to fall, if we want it to have a chance to bend the arc of history towards justice, we have not to be distracted. We have to be focused and take the long view. We're going to be talking to some smart people, John Nichols, coming up next about what is happening with the ongoing criminal conspiracy and the investigation in the 2016 election. That's going to be up next. I'm Jeff. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order Using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent with The Nation Magazine, joins us now, the author of Horseman of the Trunk Apocalypse, and now the latest in The Nation, Donald Trump's fixer says the president engaged in a criminal conspiracy to sway the 2016 election. Good morning, John. How are you doing? And what do we need to know? The subhead of my piece, which is, of course, his fixer trying to sway an election and the line, that's impeachable. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing for people to understand. It's very easy at this point to talk about Michael Cohen. And he is, frankly, a fascinating figure. He's the Cato Kalin of... Uh, <laughs> this moment for people who might remember past scandals, but he is somebody who is going to point us in directions and show us some things we need to know. And the one thing you need to know about Donald Trump at this point is that in, unless Michael Cohen is making things up, and we have very little reason to believe that he is, Donald Trump engaged in an active conspiracy to influence the 2016 election at the very last moments, by seeking to cloak information about scandalous behavior in which he was involved. We don't have to judge his behavior, but what we have to recognize is he went out of his way to make sure that people were paid off not to talk about activities he had engaged in, which he thought, apparently, by, by all accounts, might sway the election. And why that matters is that this election was decided by about 77,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And so what we have to take away from this is, with that tiny number of votes you know, deciding the race, it is entirely possible, in fact, it's likely, that his illegal actions, if indeed they are found to have occurred, these illegal actions swayed the election. By any measure, that tells us, A, that his presidency is illegitimate by any reasonable measure, but B, 
that you have the grounds for impeaching this man. How do you and what timeline would you recommend? I have my own view. I'm interested in yours about the timeline and the order of operations in discussing impeachment. We had a good caller yesterday who offered their own view, focus on illegitimacy, leave impeachment for later. What do you think? Well, no, I don't leave impeachment for later. The founders gave us some duties and some responsibilities, and one of them is to hold those with power to account. We don't have a opportunity to stand aside and say, oh, we want to make political calculations or we want to you know, see how one thing plays or something like that. That's what the people we criticize do. So impeachment is, is not an opportunity. It's a duty, especially at this point. But it's also not something that you entertain casually. Remember, you are asking the Congress of the United States, and frankly, with the support of the American people, uh, to take an action that does undo an election result. We should take that seriously. We shouldn't do it casually. And so there's a simple model. It goes back to the Watergate era. It goes back even before that, of course. And that is you win control of the House of Representatives in November because Paul Ryan is an irresponsible leader and the other folks around him are part of a cabal that will not follow through in any way on their constitutional duties. They place their party above their oath of office. So you elect a new Congress, you convene a Judiciary Committee, and you open hearings on these issues. They are relatively open-ended at the start. You recognize that there will be criticism, there will be a lot of theater around it, but you stay focused on the core issues, you gather sufficient amount of information, and then once you've reviewed this, just as Peter Rodino did in 1974, you put forward carefully focused, carefully thought articles of impeachment, and you ask people to support them. And you work hard to get a couple of honorable Republicans to come across and join you. That's not easy, I know, but it's also not beyond the realm of possibility. And uh, you move forward. And that's just the simple reality of it. How far you get will depend on how much hope there is uh, for a constitutional republic. That No, understood and appreciate appreciate your point that don't treat this as a political calculation. Treat this as an exercise of constitutional duty. Treat it seriously. Act on principle and fact, not on opportunism. And I, I don't know that I could agree more with that. And thank you for it. We had a caller in who wanted to make the case that nothing Trump did was illegal. How do you respond to that? First off, we're talking about impeachment. So illegality is not the issue. High crimes, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. Yes, and that's a wonderful term chosen by the founders, rooted in history. And that term is is a a broad catch. It allows you to look at a whole host of, of potential issues here. Remember, impeachment is not a legal act. Impeachment is a but but but, but both crime but both crime and misdemeanor suggest legality, yeah. No, not in this case. I wrote a book on it, and believe me, I understand how people think that that would be the case. But in fact, if you look at the original intent, and I know our conservative friends love to do that, the original intent was that it be broadly defined. And of all people, Gerald Ford, the former president, former uh, top Republican in the House of Representatives, defined impeachment as well as anyone, and he said, impeachment is what Congress. It is. And I agree that, but that goes back to the political calculation yeah. that you were saying we shouldn't use primarily. Last word, because they're about to shut us both yeah. off. What do you think is the most important ground for impeachment? The most important ground in this for case. impeachment is exact, it's exactly what we're talking about here. If the president of the United States conspired with his lawyer to pay people off to warp the results of an election, that is an abuse against the basic premises of the American experiment, and this president should be impeached, although there are many other issues collusion, etc., obstruction of justice that, that might take precedence, I will always argue that you impeach on behalf of democracy first. John Nichols, thank you so much for joining us. You can check him out at The Nation and get his book. This is the Humberton Program. I'm Jeff. We are back with the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. It's an honor to be with you. Let's go to Lou. We've had a lot of people patiently waiting. One of them is Lou from Pueblo, Colorado. Hey, uh, Jefferson, good show. Uh, it's always good to see Tom get a break, especially we get a different point of view in, which is always good. Uh, I was going to discuss the the EPA before the EPA. When I was a kid growing up in west part of St. Louis, we used to be able to write our names on the cars in the in the coal ash from the power plant, and my dad would always buy gray cars so the ice didn't show. 
and, and virtually everybody I knew had about 50% of the kids had bronchitis. It was real common back then. Yeah. And then the EPA came along and they put these restrictions on coal plants. And uh, most people don't know it's more than a 99% reduction. As, as dirty as you might think a coal plant is, it's 99% reduced from what it was in 1970. And what a lot of people don't know, in 1970, the coal plants were all about to go broke because of the cost of fuel. When the EPA forced them to clean up their combustion, the only way to do it was to burn more efficiently, and they actually reduced the amount of coal by 75% required to burn to create a kilowatt of energy so the epa saved the coal industry and if we went with obama's clean coal initiative it would once again save the industry yeah lou and a couple of things i want to amplify one is one of the important challenges the important results of there not being new solution-oriented journalism and i i think when i guess i should probably do some more myself uh, the when there are good people who are doing good things, that we've got to, when when government or democracy does something that is useful that has positive results, we've got to make sure we tell those stories, because you're right. I think people have forgotten how the, the impact that Social Security and Medicare had. That when Social Security and Medicare were uh, were passed, just prior to that, our oldest generation was the poorest generation. We now, and I think we may face it again as baby boomers retire without retirements, but we now have where the oldest generation is the second wealthiest generation, where we don't have catastrophic poverty to the same scale we had before government intervention. Same thing with the environment. We are on the way not only to heating the planet, but also to just making it so none of us could breathe. And it was actually and getting worse and worse and worse. And California has actually gotten a little better. The air is cleaner now than it was when I was a kid. So I appreciate the call. Uh, let's go to Paul, who's been waiting patiently from Lucerne, California. Just mentioned California. You want to talk about the Senate from the Twitter conversation? Yes, I do. But first of all, I'd like to mention there's only one way to stop this Supreme Court nominee from being appointed to the Supreme Court, and that is to deny Mitch McConnell a quorum. And you can do that by every single Democrat leaving town. Now, I've done my research on this, and it would actually work. Now, I'm in, I'm in the party, and we can't do nothing unless we have a quorum. A certain amount of people it takes to, to make a quorum. Now, I heard this suggested about a month ago. Yeah, it was, it was suggested one time while I was sitting here. Yeah, it's where smart people talk about the news. I love <laughs> it. But I, I talked to a Senate staffer, and they said, yeah, it would work. And the only entity that can chase down the senators and compel them to come back is one person, the sergeant in arm. Not his staff, just him. So if every single senator was to not come home from vacation, every Democrat, and stay home, and avoid the sergeant of arms, they can't get the Supreme Court nominee pushed through until after the election. And this guy isn't just about women's rights. This is about all rights. Okay, because this guy, we're all, everybody's talking about impeachment. This guy doesn't think a president should be impeached or even investigated until after he's done being president. Yeah, and Lou, you're saying the times are extreme enough to consider extreme measures, and I think at least discussing them, I can see why you would want to and why it makes why, why there's a strong argument. I want to go to Claudio in Westerfield, Connecticut, watching on YouTube. Hello, Claudio. Hey, good morning. How you doing? Doing all right. Good afternoon from where I am. How are you? I'm all right. Um, here's my, my concern. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, you know, I, I view America as sort of like the alcoholic. You're not going to really turn it around until you hit rock bottom. Yeah. Uh, and my question is, what do you consider to be the event oh, that will hit us at rock bottom? Because I really was always telling everybody, you know, Trump being president, that's good because within six months we'll hit rock bottom. And now everything that's happening and everything that's going on, I'm realizing what Einstein said is right. You know, the difference between stupidity and genius is that genius has its limits. And it just amazes me because there's going to be some catastrophic event that's going to have to occur before things get turned around. 
That's my feeling. I'd like to know what you think. Is it's plague or if it's yeah? No, I hear you. I'll, I'll give my thought. Revolution. I'll give my thought. Uh, first of all, I think it's an important insight. And if we look at the major political changes in American history, they usually have corresponded with major events. So the turn of the last century, which is a time that I've been focusing on for the last 10 years, really because of the turn of this last century, heck, more than 10 years, and moving from an, an agrarian age into an industrial age, a shift to the economy, and one that had uh, significant impacts on not only the economy and human life and also democracy and the purchase of democracy. And from that, you had the dawn of the progressive era that... Although there could be climate catastrophe, that'd be one possibility. An alien invasion, I doubt it. Maybe a war, but those have, that can cut both ways. Best guess, before I go to break, in eight to ten years, as no retirement retiring seniors age, I could imagine an economic catastrophe. We'll talk about it more. This is the Tom Hartman Show. want to go to Stephen Spaulding on the phone with Common Cause, Chief of Strategy and External Affairs. Stephen, can you hear me? Yes, thanks for having me. Talk to me about Common Cause's role. We, we, so much of the news focuses on the personalities of the objects, but sometimes we miss the subjects. What's happening with Common Cause? Well, back earlier this winter, Common Cause filed the first complaints with the Federal Election Commission and the Department of Justice, alleging that the hush money payments by Michael Cohen were illegal campaign contributions that were not disclosed and that may have exceeded the contribution limits and may have violated the corporate contribution limits. All in all, what we alleged was that the money to Stormy Daniels and to Karen McDougal that that money was made for the purpose of influencing the election, that it was made with the knowledge and in cooperation with the candidate, then candidate Donald Trump, which transformed that money from hush money into an unreported in-kind campaign contribution. I got a so bunch of questions. that's what alleged, and that's what Michael Cohen pled guilty to this week in two different felony counts. I got a bunch of questions and want to be able to get to callers. How is this different than John Edwards, who tried to keep quiet the child that was being born from an extramarital relationship and, as I recall, was acquitted from campaign finance violations by saying, no, no, I didn't do it to influence the campaign. I did it to protect my family and otherwise reputation. How is this different? Well, here, I mean, the facts and circumstances are far stronger here than in the Edwards case. And I'll say even in the Edwards case, the facts and circumstances were strong and resulted actually in a hung jury in most of the counts when it came to John Edwards. So there was actually no resolution or unanimous acquittal on five, I think, of the six counts there. But here, the facts are far more different. Recall that the payment to Stormy Daniels came really weak. Well, the conversation started days after the Access Hollywood tape leaked of the president bragging about sexual assault. So the campaign was at the time reeling from allegations about the president's treatment of women. That launched this effort to buy Stormy Daniels silence, who was then apparently in conversations with a number of news outlets to tell her story. Suddenly, the $130,000 payment is funneled through the anonymous Delaware LLC that Michael Cohen set up, and the story never comes out. So it is much more apparent here that the payment was made for the purpose of influencing the election by keeping the information out of the news cycle than it was about you know, protecting the president's relationship to Melania Trump. Given the timing, given the circumstances, given the race, we think it's clear that this was really a campaign-related expenditure. Understood. And that is what the Southern District of New York charged Michael Cohen with and what he pled guilty to. Two other questions. I'll ask them together. One, do you have indications, what is your impression, did the president commit criminal conduct? And second, do impeachment articles require criminal conduct? So first, we know that Michael Cohen said in court that he did this at the direction of and in coordination of, with the candidate, then, then candidate Donald Trump. So that would implicate the president. Now, number two, and just to be clear, when you say implicate the the question, I know might have been a dumb, dumb question that I asked, but is that illegal? Yes, it would be. Yes, that is correct. 
So if he did this at the direction of the president, if the president was funneling this money through Michael Cohen, through the LLC, not reporting it, he was doing it at the direction that would be illegal conduct. Now, as for the question about impeachment, the law is one that it's not something that the Congress has Responsibility of impeachment, of course, rests with the Congress, with the House of Representatives, and the Constitution says high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, the law of impeachment is one that is, you know, extensive, but does not require it to necessarily be a violation of United States code to be an impeachable offense. We saw that with Richard Nixon, when the articles of impeachment were drawn up, uh, even with President Clinton's impeachment. The law of impeachment is about high crimes and misdemeanors, which is not always the same thing as a violation of United States code. Talking to Stephen Spaulding with Common Cause. Stephen, want to get to some callers, and thank you so much for joining us. What should I have asked you? What are you looking at now? What's the most next important set of questions that you or I or other people should be asking or answering? Well, I think the next question is, what is Michael Cohen going to do next? His attorneys have said that he has more to say, particularly with regards to the ongoing investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller into the 2016 campaign and any links to the Russian interference in our elections. So where does this go from here? What else does Michael Cohen say? Are there other tapes that exist? We know Michael Cohen released a tape that was abruptly cut off. Apparently, um, many in Trump's orbit use this tactic of taping conversations. So I think that this will continue to unravel. And we do know also that there's an ongoing investigation into the Trump Foundation and whether any fraud that may have been committed by the Trump Foundation and Apparently, Cohen may be involved in some of the subpoenas that have been served there. So, I mean, he's really a central player to all yeah. things Trump. He was his, you know, so-called fix-it guy, his personal attorney. He may have a number of uh, documents that were swept up in the raids of his homes and his hotel and his, and his office that remain to be seen. But I just, I, there's just not enough to speculate. But You don't need to, and we appreciate the time. Stephen Spaulding, you can check his work out in the nation. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. I appreciate it. Let's talk to David Arkush, Managing Director, Public Citizens Climate Program. He joins us now to talk about this, which somehow is not at the top of the front page of the Fox News website or in a running Chiron and the bottom of the screen on the Fox News TV. David, hello. <laughs> hey there, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. What do we need to know, man? Well, uh, I mean, you covered some of the most important things. So Trump has proposed uh, a rule to roll back and change uh, the Obama-era clean power plan. This is a rule that is still on the books, technically. This is a rule that the intent was to reduce carbon pollution principally by reducing the use of coal. And it set goals of reducing carbon pollution by 32% lower than 2005 levels by 2030. And it was actually too weak and didn't really, in large part, codifying some trends uh, that were already happening, maybe pushing them along a little further. And we need much more assertive action to stave off catastrophic climate change. But it was the right type of policy. It's the right direction to go. And, of course, the targets could have been strengthened. It also had a lot of flexibility for states to figure out how to meet the targets. And what Trump did this week is his EPA, Andrew Wheeler, the head, who's a coal lobbyist, they're proposing to replace this rule with one that would do two things. One is not regulate carbon at all directly by the EPA. Instead, kick it to the states and say, do whatever you want in terms of regulating carbon. And two, open a giant loophole for existing coal plants, which is right now when you make major upgrades to a coal plant, you have to come into compliance with modern pollution control technologies. And that's really expensive. And so rather than do that, a lot more coal plants have been shutting down. So in fact, it's not just that this is sort of rolling back a rule that would have helped curb climate pollution and other forms of pollution from coal-fired power plants. It actually is probably going to make things worse and actually make more coal plants stay open than would have otherwise. Actually, before I ask, what's the justification for it? I mean, I know the justification is it's August. They think they can get away with it. And he's got coal executives wanting it. And it allows him to go to West Virginia and say, I'm for coal and screw Obama. 
So I get those parts. What needs to still happen? What are the chances to block this? Or is the only chance to block this for Democrats somehow to get the presidency or the presidency and both chambers of Congress to pass a law? I think there are good chances to block this. So what still has to happen, the agency has to go through a process. This is just a proposal. Before it's finalized, the agency has to take public comment. It's supposed to do lots of studies and analysis to justify the rule, and then it can finalize the rule. And then, of course, you know, people can sue over the rule if it's illegal or if the agency didn't do its job right in terms of the rulemaking process. The agency has proposed to have only a 60-day comment period. That is far too short. Some rules have a comment period that short, but it is exceedingly rare for a rule this complex to have a comment period that short. I think the Obama administration... So to use fewer words, they're trying to ram it through by not giving enough chance <laughs> right, for analysis, right? That's the that's technical term, yeah. yeah. You know, the Obama... I can't even remember if it was one year or two years from when they proposed it to when they finalized it. Usually, you know, with a rule this complicated, you do a lot more work. You have a bunch of hearings in public. But let me interrupt analysis. you. When net neutrality came up, there yep. was a comment period, not as lengthy as prior. There was a comment period. But part of me was like, listen... What determined how they're going to decide is the president that appointed them, not the letter that I write. How are you feeling about this EPA? Do you think that if there is enough pressure applied by human beings who don't want 1,400 deaths a year, that they would actually change course? No, but I do think that obviously they're very result-driven. They know what they want to do, which is enrich coal billionaires, even if it means killing thousands of Americans, tens of thousands of Americans, and destroying the world with climate pollution. But See, that just seems like the beginning and the end. That's the thing we ought to be yelling. We had a caller calling yesterday. He said, listen, listen, you fluffy heart. That's me calling myself, not him calling me that. He said, eventually you're going to have to figure out a way to win in states that have two senators, even with small populations. You can't just focus on, you know, your hometown of Portland. And I agree. It seems to me, however, even people in Nebraska don't want thousands of people to die. That's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the polling, it's narrow majorities in a place like, say, West Virginia or Montana, where there's a lot of coal production. But even there, a majority of people actually want regulations on coal-fired power plants, want carbon regulated as a pollutant. They believe in global warming. They think it's real. They want solutions. They support a transition to renewables, even in sort of the heart of coal country. Right. So how do we get the word out there, man? How do we get the word out? Because when public citizen, if I don't have it wrong, public citizen is one of the groups that Ralph Nader started during his hero days in the 70s. And back in the day, the media was different. And so was Congress. How does a group like public citizen now? And yeah, you come on this show. But how do we get the word to folks? Because Fox News sure isn't covering it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things we are doing is we're actually pushing for broader media coverage, right? I I appreciate the work you're doing here. I appreciate all that public radio is doing. But we need more, right? We need to, this needs to be a mainstream issue. Like you said in the intro, talking about events like the 9-11 attacks. I mean, climate change is a threat as big, bigger, frankly, than World War II was to the United States. Yeah. Imagine what media coverage was like during World War II. No, I was talking to an author. She's going down to tour Antarctica. She got a grant to check out the piece of a a glacier, some mega glacier, I already forget its name, that if it melts, if it breaks off and melts, just that one piece of ice adds 15 feet to sea level around the world. There are islands that 15 feet means they don't exist anymore. Absolutely. And what people, a lot of people don't realize is that this is far more urgent than people, at least in the U.S., think. Like, this is, we're talking about catastrophic outcomes at the end of this century. And at the same time, a lot of people don't realize that we mostly know how to fix this. And so you combine those things, and I think, you know... We know scientifically, but do we know politically? Oh, well, that's right. But I think part of the answer to the politics is, frankly, getting the word out about, about this issue, right? An existential threat to our country that we know how to fix is the type of issue that we solve. We will rise to that. To that challenge and we will meet it and uh, the problem right now is that's not the shape of the problem to most people most people are still stuck in this kind of old mode of thinking you know climate change is this far off distant thing maybe it's going to hurt people in a couple hundred years the problem is mostly sea level rise and we can probably build you know walls or something to keep it out and we don't really know how to fix it anyway yep. and, and, and that's da- just all wrong now david arkish the website is citizen.org thanks for being with us This is the Tom Hartman Program.
You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. I'm Jefferson Smith, and this is the Tom Hartman Program. I hope to be talking about the need to take a long view. That lots of times. My critique of most media... And most news organizations is not that they make up stuff. It's not that it's fake news. Is that one of the harder things to do is put this stuff in context and put into a context that can actually yield the kind of action that is necessary to save democracy, save the middle class and save the climate. And in order to put it in context, it helps, I think, to use some historical analogs. I cited to the progressive era at the turn of the last century, moving from the agrarian to the industrial age. I analogize to it, not only because of the turn of the century and we just had one, but also because it's convenient that at that time, like this time, as we shift from an industrial age to an information age, also facing a workforce unprepared for a changing economy, meaningful changes needed in a regulatory regime that was built for a previous economic era. And when that happened... The biggest changes weren't happening because of Congress, and they weren't happening because of Woodrow Wilson, and they certainly weren't happening because of William McKinley. Women's suffrage happened because it happened state by state. In my state, I think it took them five times until they finally pounded the rock enough that the stone split. California passed a crucial committee vote. It is heading to the assembly floor. We have Tim Carr on the line to talk to us about it. Tim Carr, the Senior Director for Strategy with Free Press and the Press Free Press Action Fund. Tim, thanks for joining us. Great to be on your show. What did we learn in California help people understand what's going on? California is one of several dozen states that in the wake of the December 2017 decision by the Federal Communications Commission, the decision to do away with net neutrality protections, at the federal level, state legislators have taken up legislation on the state level to protect net neutrality locally. The state of Washington has put one in place. Other bills have been introduced. I think on last count, it was, it was more than 30 states have are weighing net neutrality legislation in some fashion. California has a very good bill that has wended its way through the state house there and, and, and is facing a vote we believe that will be successful um, in the coming days. So uh, California, as uh, is usual on a lot of progressive issues, is leading the way in creating state-level legislation that would protect net neutrality. Now, that, that's important. It's important that the states respond when the federal fi- government fails to do so. Um, cities have also been very 
um, very aggressively uh, leading the progressive movement during the Trump era. More than 125 city mayors have signed what's called the city's open Internet pledge, which says that they won't do business with any Internet service provider that violates net neutrality. And I want to understand the limit. Yeah, so I understand roughly what procurement can do, right? And if enough cities get together, they buy enough software, they use enough telecommunications, they could have some lever. New York City is, I think New York City is the fourth biggest government in the country. What Number one is the United States government. Second, I think, is the state of California. Third, I think, is New York City. And fourth, I think, is New York State. But anyway... My question is how big a lever California is or how big a lever these states are. What are the limits to that? So for an auto emissions, if California makes a, a regulatory decision, makes an emissions decision, that impacts the entirety, certainly the West Coast, but really of the United States automobile market because there's such a large share of the automobile market. What are the limits or the reach of state-based, locally-based net neutrality requirements? Well, on, on the budgetary issues, these are the executive orders and the city pledges where they've stated that they won't be doing business with any ISP that violates net neutrality. That involves millions of dollars. Uh, you look at New York State, and they do, over the last five years, they've done hundreds of millions of dollars of business with their Internet service providers. So if these ISPs decide that, indeed, they want to violate net neutrality, they're leaving potentially billions of dollars on the table. And now what's happening in California is that the legislation goes beyond that and actually implements the type of rules that we had put in place at the FCC in 2015. And there's not interstate uh, commerce uh, limits to that? There, uh, there are internet, interstate commerce limits. The, the, legi- the, um, the laws, and in fact, the FCC has said that it plans to challenge a lot of these state-level laws. Uh, but when you're dealing with budgetary issues, when you're dealing with right. purchasing d- decisions, those are left in the hands of the localities. So and I want to pause. I want to pause. Make those decisions based upon. Uh, you know their own control of their of their of their bo- of their books. And I want to pause there just in case my question threw a couple people. So essentially, and again, I will cite as I did yesterday, my constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe, who to get through my skull. Essentially, the summary is to to impact interstate commerce so that you don't violate, so you don't, so a state doesn't do what only Congress can do. The uh, you're allowed to give carrots. It's harder to do sticks. It's allowed to say we can spend our money how we choose, but harder to say I'm California. I will prohibit, you know, this company from living in California if they do the following thing. There will be challenges to that. What do you think? Uh, what are the legal arguments there, and/or what do you think the likelihood of success or failure is? Well, well first, I should preface this with that I, that, that I am not a lawyer, um, uh, and uh, most of the best people aren't. Professor would certainly know more about it than I would. But I think what what's really interesting. Is that is that these these local uh, initiatives are happening, whether they're legislative, whether they're city pledges, whether they're executive orders made by state governors, um, in uh, as a kind of brazen, I would say, challenge to uh, to the federal government, which um, we're suing. Free Press, my organization, is suing the FCC because we believe that this decision to repeal net neutrality. Was made was a misinterpretation of the law. Yeah. So our concerns about the state level um, challenges, uh, the potential that the FCC might take some of these states and cities to court, um, are small because we believe that in fact the FCC decision itself is wrong. was unlawful, and uh, we're in the process. We've, we've filed a complaint against the FCC. We just. We just put in a brief in that proceeding. It's at the D.C. Circuit of the Federal Appeals Court. We should be hearing arguments later this year. We believe that we can overturn the original decision by the FCC in 2017 uh, and make sure that this new rule, the repeal of net neutrality, never takes effect. Um, and that is in one of those the reasons that we focus at the federal level is because we, while we we're very encouraged by states and cities that, that are taking on net neutrality. We show, it shows a, a sign that net neutrality is really important. Yeah, you want it at the federal at, level. I get that. At the local level, I think everybody understands we want that. to make sure that everybody's protected. Of course. Right? There are certain states who haven't. Yeah, no, no. That, I think that argument, I think that argument's pretty clear. And there, there are certain states where legislation isn't making its way um, through the various state houses, like um, what's happening in California right now. So, What's the most important so thing for people to know now? At the federal level. 
Well, one of the important battles that we're engaged in right now at the federal level is to convince this Congress to reject the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. Well, they're not going to. The way that you do, do that. Do you, think, do you think there's a chance for this Republican Congress to do that? Well, we have introduced a resolution of disapproval in the Senate, and that passed with a bipartisan majority. You think the House follows along? 52 to 47. We're now looking to get that same resolution through the House. Well, good luck, man. I don't know what your percentage chances are, but we're rooting for you. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You're listening to The Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. We've got Bob Nay on the line. Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Bob, how you doing? I am good, Jefferson. How are you? You know, I will, before the weekend, answer that question okay. in a more honest way. At this moment, what I will say, I'm doing great, Bob. What do we need to talk about? Well, a couple of things before we get into uh, Trump, Cohen, Manafort, etc., and potential impeachment. Um, the president has said today that his presidency is crucial in an interview to the market gains, and, quote, if I ever got impeached, I think the market would crash. I think everybody would be poor. And, of course, this is following the theme that if people voted for him during the election when he ran, that people would become rich. So, therefore, it makes sense that if the market crashes, if he's impeached, they would become poor. But if we look historically, obviously, um, at situations of impeachment and Bill Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, markets have not crashed Markets adjust, and the country moves on. And, and the, the good news is that people who bought stock the moment before the 1987 crash, as long as they held on to it, still made a lot of money from it. The people who didn't have right. to sell property during the last real estate crash, if they purchased it the day before the crash, as long as they didn't have to sell it, they still made money on it. So what we have to do is make sure we're not gnats and we maintain memories that are longer than a day. So yesterday, we were talking to Ellen, your colleague, and she had offered to us your own prediction that Republicans would hold on to Congress. And I wanted you to make that case from your mouth. Uh, no, actually, what oh, I Oh, I misunderstood. Is, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, what I sent uh, and Ellen sent out was that I, I was doing an analysis of where we stood on the seats. And um, right now, if... Uh, if the election were held today, the uh, Democratic side would need to turn uh, what I saw, 17 seats. And I'm giving two seats, the Duncan Hunter seat in California and the Collins seat in New York. I'm putting them into the definite lean Democratic side. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other, other uh, people that are analyzing this aren't doing that. I, I'm going to put those seats in the lean Democratic side. That means they have to turn 17 seats. Now, of the 22 I've got, is a top So to be, clear, to be clear, you're saying that, that there's 17 because, what, there actually need to be 24 or 25, and you think there's eight that are a certainty? Right. And, 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 but I'm also looking at the toss-ups, and uh, there are 22 toss-ups. Yeah. So they need to get 17 either from those 22, or they would um, be able to get, uh, pick up additional seats because 25 of the seats that are held by Republicans were won by Hillary Clinton. So any combination of the toss-ups and or the 25 seats would give them control. And when you say the 25 that were won by Hillary Clinton, you're saying 25, those you don't consider those toss-ups, or those are leaning Republican, but leaning Republican despite the fact that Hillary Clinton won those districts? Explain the 25. Right. They're they're incumbent Republicans, but I believe those are up for grabs. I believe those seats could be up for grabs. Uh, because of you know Hillary Clinton's uh, win in those seats and now Donald Trump's position. So, what I'm saying is it's very close. I think for a 50-50 you know uh, control of the House. I don't think it's. A, uh, I disagree with my friends who say it's an automatic. They're going to pick up 65 seats. Now, uh, you know, so I think though it's close. Um, but they they can they have opportunities. The Democratic side has opportunities to turn uh, some of these seats, not just the toss-ups that are open up out there, but also some of the incumbent Republicans who Hillary Clinton, you know, performed quite well in those districts and things have now changed. I know you need to bounce. One other question. What are you hearing? You do a lot of different shows and you serve as a Republican member of Congress. What are the key arguments right now that Republicans are using in the wake of Manafort and uh, in the wake of Manafort and Cohen's revelation? What are you hearing? In addition, is it is it just, oh, no, look at that young, you know, young girl who was murdered and, oh, there's no collusion or is there anything else they're focusing on? 
Well, they go on, they're going to go on the on the you know legal issue, the undocumented, the murder. They're going to go on that. They're going to go raise some issues of guns. They're going to raise the I word, the impeachment. That if in fact you elect them, the Democratic side, they are going to impeach the president. Now that will work for some people, and some people it won't. They'll talk about taxes, et cetera, anything but Trump. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it a lot, Bob Nay. Thanks for joining us. Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith in the final stretch here in the Tom Hartman program. We are going to try something different. There are several calls that are on overlapping subjects. We'll hear each of them. And after hearing a few of them, then I'll respond. And through that way, we'll get through some more callers. We're going to start with John from Youngstown, Ohio. John, speak your piece. And then we're going to go straight to Luther from Benton. John, go ahead. All right, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. If if Trump is impeached, you're going to have Mike Pence, this religious nutcase, as president. He introduced legislation in Illinois that he wanted them to teach creationism in, in public schools, and that evolution was just theory. And does impeachment make it any better? I get I get your question, Carol from Pennsylvania. Hi. You're doing a great job, and I liked your analogy of the rattlesnake, because if we could cut off the head of this snake, and we would still be left with all these rattlers like Mike Pence, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell. The entire Republican Party is corrupt at this point, and I, I really don't think it would make much difference, although I do worry a lot about the incompetence of Donald Trump and the policies, which are so dangerous to this country and the people in it, the way he's rolling back everything that kept us safe for years and healthy. I mean, there's nothing that he has done which would benefit us. But I I don't see that that would be all that much different from what the the general Republican Party uh, policies are today. So I don't know. I would rather wait and impeach him once we take over the House and we have at least a chance of a good Speaker of the House. And, and yeah, so your point now is you don't want to focus on impeachment right now. And I hear you and I'll respond to it. Bill, Sebastian, Florida, go ahead. I'd like to know why Trump was allowed to get as far as he had gotten when he was denied a casino license in Australia because of his morals and uh, the people that he affiliated with. And uh, the state of Nevada would not give him a license because of his uh, banking practices and whatnot. But why wasn't that picked up by the media and blasted across the, the airwaves? Yeah. Oligarchy and media connection and the help of some dirty dealers, that's as good a start as any. John from Bellevue, Michigan. Go ahead. Hello, Jeff. I want to see Mueller do everything he's going to do because I think before it's over, the Republican Party is going to be called the No-Publicans. Thank you. Hector from Chicago on solutions. Yeah, when it comes to solutions, it uh, has to do with uh, the show that, you know, you guys talked about history of the world a couple times, Spain and Brazil were the majority rule. To protest by majority, the majority of Americans Mm. must strike and protest change our government we're a leader of the world so the outcome would be worldwide changes and i I know i'm looking forward to it well hector i appreciate the call so let me uh, let me say this it hadn't been how we thought we'd start the show and therefore i want to respond to it with the end of the show and that is the subject of impeachment my own view of this community my own view of this show is it has to be something more than entertainment If all we are is playing a violin on the side of the Titanic, then we ourselves are complicit. If all we are is watching this ridiculous and painful and tragic and historically consequential reality show as viewers, then we risk complicity. We have to be an active community. And as such, I learn something every single show. Sometimes it's because, well, usually it's because something the caller says. And sometimes something that occurs to me in trying to figure out how to respond. The question, one of the big questions of the day was about impeachment. We had several callers, some callers who didn't even get through, who wanted to make the same point. Should we stress impeachment? Should we not? I think I finally now have my thought. This is somewhat in review. The reason I don't think now is the time for impeachment 
is not merely political reality, but because I think we have to go way bigger than that. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't be talking about it. I'm not saying people shouldn't be investigating. We should be investigating, not as a matter of political opportunity, but as a matter of constitutional necessity, as John Nichols, as we had guests make the case. But if you're in politics and you got to answer this question, instead of trying to dodge it, instead of trying to say, well, I don't want to, I, uh, it's not time. Let's do that later. Go bigger. Lean into it. It goes deeper than one person. He's not the head of the snake. We need to deal root and branch. We can't pretend Donald Trump is the whole problem. The country. We got to save the country. We got to save the middle class, save democracy, save the planet. That's what it's about. It's not about power. It's not about personality. It certainly isn't about entertainment. You are the coalition of benevolently irrational, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless? Worth a lot, not for sale. Without you, democracy doesn't have much chance. With you, we got a chance. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.